sins against me up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began the, seven, and he began the settlement. A man who owned him ten thousand bags of gold was brought, gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay the master, but the, ma the master pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to, to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed, over, handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will teach each, and each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work to illuminate its meaning to us, that you would convict us in being obedient to the teachings of Christ. Um, we just pray that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. In the name of your Son, amen. Sometimes it feels good to be angry. That at least has been my experience. It doesn't feel good to be angry at things, say my computer for being slow, or my car for breaking down. Nor does it feel good to be angry at myself for what I did or didn't do, for sticking my foot in my mouth, for forgetting to do something again. There is no pleasure in those experiences of anger. Sometimes, though, it does feel good to be angry at somebody else. Specifically, when someone has truly wronged you. Maybe they broke a promise. 
Maybe they embarrassed you in front of others. Maybe they ruined a good time by being a selfish snot. Maybe they stole something of yours or even physically injured you. Now, you'd much prefer that none of that happened, but since it did, you will savor your anger. You will embrace your sense of superiority in comparison to them. Of greatest pleasure, you will scheme your revenge. You will hurt them back directly, blow for blow, or indirectly by shunning them and telling everyone you know just how terrible this person is. But then this person comes to us, hat in hand, admitting that what they did was wrong and asking our forgiveness. What are we to do then? What are we to do when this is the umpteenth time they've wronged us and pleaded for forgiveness. This is Peter's question for Jesus here at the end of Matthew 18. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus has instructed his disciples about how they are to address sin in each other's lives. The church is a community of transformation. Disciples are to help each other in turning their backs on sin. When disciples refuse to change after multiple pleas, they must be placed outside of the community to shake them to their senses. The goal is always restoration. So Peter's question appears naturally here, as one might wonder how many chances you should give a person over their lifetime. And so he asks in these first few verses here, in verses 21 through 22, He asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, when when Peter asked this question, he probably is imagining that he's being quite generous because the rabbinic wisdom at that time said that you could forgive someone up to three times. And so he's going a measure higher, going to seven. And seven is a divine number. It's a perfect number. That seems like that would be the sufficient number of times in which you would forgive someone. And, but maybe he even thinks that he's kind of going over the top and Jesus might talk him down back to the three. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead, he says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, in some other um, versions of the Bible, it says 70 times seven. So you could say that's four, 490 the scholars I read seem to think that it is actually 77 times what he's referring to here. But the point isn't really the finite number. It's not as though Jesus expects Peter to be like keeping a notepad and tallying off how many times he's forgiven someone until he gets to like the 78th point. He's like, you're out of luck, bucko. You're hit number 78. I'm not forgiving you. No, that's not his point. His point is, is that Peter is supposed to forgive this person who comes to them and repentance endlessly. He's supposed to always forgive when that person comes asking for forgiveness and promising to change. Now, there's something else here, though, that's significant about this number of 77. And it actually takes us back to the beginning of Scripture. 
back to the book of Genesis. Now, you might recall the story of Cain and Abel and how um, Cain was upset because God was not pleased with his sacrifice, but he was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, and so Cain kills Abel. And God places a curse upon Cain, and he's supposed to be wandering across the land, and uh, Cain's worried because he thinks someone else is going to kill him. So the guy who killed somebody's worried someone's going to kill him, naturally. That's his worry. But it says in Genesis 4.15, this is what God says to Cain, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And then interestingly, we see some generations later, in verse 23, a son of Cain, Lamech, says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. So Jesus is making an allusion here to Lamech's words of vengeance, saying that if someone hurts him, they're going to be paid back 77 times. And so we have this complete reversal of 77 times of vengeance exchanged for 77 times of forgiveness. What Jesus is reminding his disciples is that things are different in the kingdom of God. That might have been how things were before, but something new has come. Now, before we go further, I think it's important for us to define forgiveness. Um, because I think there's a little bit of confusion in our culture as to what we exactly mean when we talk about forgiveness. And I think as we look at Scripture, we find basically two forms of forgiveness. The first is forgiveness as relenting of revenge. And then also the second, forgiveness as the restoration of relationship. Now, sometimes when someone does something wrong to us, it's better for us to just overlook it completely. And in the book of Proverbs, uh, this is prescribed as a wise thing to do. Proverbs 19.11, it says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. So sometimes when someone does something pretty minor to you, it's best just to let it go. Just roll it, let it roll off your back like water off a duck's back and just move on. But other times, more serious things happen. And we've, we feel like we've got to do something about it. Now, what the Bible prescribes when it comes to dealing with wrongs that others have committed against you is to forgive. It is to not take vengeance. And so the first form of forgiveness, as relenting of revenge, I define it as to leave vengeance in God's hands and to treat someone else as Jesus would treat them. Now, we've heard Jesus tell us that we're supposed to love our neighbors, love our enemies, and treat them kindly. So, forgiveness here doesn't look like a full reconciliation of relationship between you and the person that has wronged you. But what it does look like is you saying, I'm going to let go of thinking about revenge. 
I'm not going to let this burden my mind anymore. I'm going to leave this in God's hands. And in fact, if my path crossed with this person, I'm going to treat them kindly. Because if you don't, then you're not leaving vengeance in God's hands. You're taking it into your own hands by treating them rottenly. And I think, actually, this is probably the most popular conception of forgiveness in our society. It's forgiveness as coming to a place of personal peace within yourself where you're not going to let what that person did bother you. And, and that's a good thing. It's good to um, let go of this di- desire for vengeance. I think it's very difficult to let go of that, though, if you don't have a place to put that, to put that vengeance. Um, if you don't believe in God, then there's always this hanging question is, Will that person ever have to answer for the wrong that they did against me? Now, the verse that I've identified for this kind of form of forgiveness is in Romans 12, 19 through 20, where Paul tells to the Christians in Rome, he says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So that's the first form of forgiveness. It's saying, I'm not going to take vengeance against somebody. I'm going to leave this in God's hands, and I'm going to treat this person the way that Jesus would treat them. Now, the second form of forgiveness, and the one which I think is mostly in view here um, in Peter's interaction with Jesus, is the kind that looks like a restoration of relationship. So this form of forgiveness I would define as to restore your relationship with someone who has acknowledged their wrongdoing, asked for forgiveness, and pledged to act differently in the future. And those three parts, I think, are very, very important because so often we can kind of leave out some of those parts when we try to fess up to doing something wrong. Um, one of the most common ways in which someone might kind of half-heartedly make an apology is say something like, I'm sorry if what I did bothered you. Now, <laughs> that's not a real confession. A confession isn't about you saying, oh, well, maybe you were bothered, and that, because that kind of locates the problem in that person. True confession locates the problem in yourself. So you have to acknowledge to someone hey, I've really messed up. I did you wrong. And then the second part is explicitly asking for forgiveness because what you're doing in that moment is putting yourself at the mercies of this person that in order for the relationship to be restored, you don't have the power to do anything. It's all up to them to, to grant that for forgiveness. So you acknowledge you're wrong, you ask for forgiveness, and then the third part, which is a really important part in this, is that you pledge to act differently in the future. Um, Because what's so critical about that piece is that it underscores the sincerity of your confession, of your apology. Because what you're saying is, is, I know what I did was wrong, and because I know that it was wrong, I'm not going to do that again. Now, the verse that I identified for this is Luke 17, verses 3 through 4, where Jesus says, So wash yourselves, 
If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So you notice the similarities here. It's this idea that when someone comes to you seeking forgiveness, in repentance, saying, I repent, that I'm going to turn away from what I was doing, that idea of I'm going to act differently in the future. When that happens, Jesus says, you must forgive them. And you have to do it again and again and again. And that's that last part there, the again and again and again part, is the really difficult part. We can accept that perhaps that when someone really acknowledges they did something wrong, and they say, I'm not going to do that anymore, that, oh, right, you know, we're going to forgive this person. Um, but what if they do it again? Am I really supposed to forgive them? It seems like they kind of broke their word. They said they weren't going to either do that same thing over again, or maybe they've sinned against me in a different way. It's, do I really have to forgive them? Doesn't it seem like Jesus is being maybe a little bit idealistic here? Well, not really, because if you go back to the previous verses, 15 through 20, we see how Jesus outlined a process for holding people accountable. And I think when someone sins repeatedly, that indicates that there's a deeper fault at work in their character. And so that calls for greater accountability. Um, and that can manifest itself in a whole variety of practical ways in the church, but um, whether that's meeting up with someone on a monthly basis to make sure that they're working out of that sin in your life, um, how are you doing with that selfishness? How are you doing with that tendency to gossip? Um, sometimes you have to take an extra step when it's made clear that there's a pattern of sin um, in your life. Um, and it doesn't preclude us from kind of having a trust and verify kind of relationship when someone has either done something very seriously wrong or has a record of repeatedly sinning in this sort of way. But all that said, all those caveats said, that person still must ultimately be forgiven again and again. Now, we can imagine Peter shifting a bit uncomfortably when Jesus says this to him. How is it right or fair for Jesus to expect him to just keep forgiving someone who does him wrong repeatedly? Perhaps sensing this, Jesus begins to tell Peter and the disciples a parable to help them understand. And he starts off this parable by talking about the kingdom of heaven. Now this is in verses, um, starting in verse 23. He's, he frames his parable as giving us a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And if you go back to the beginning of Matthew 18, you'll recall that the disciples were asking who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this is the point of references. How are things supposed to be like in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus gives them this story about a king and his servants. Now, it's not a real story in the sense that this is something that actually happened, but it's full of realistic details. It's a story about this king who had loaned out his money to some of his servants, and eventually he decided, I want my money back. He was going to go settle accounts. And there is this one servant to whom he had loaned 10,000 bags 
of gold, or in some versions it says talents. That's just an older measure of, of gold. And 10,000 in that day was a whole lot. 10,000 bags of gold represented the highest Greek numerable that they used at that time. And in modern day, that would represent about $2.5 billion. So this servant owed the king a whole lot of money. And the fact of the matter was is that he did not have a way to pay this money back. And so as a result, the king was prepared to sell this man's wife and his children into slavery. And this wasn't any kind of exceptional treatment. This happened all the time in ancient times where if you didn't have money to pay your debts, you'd have to sell one of your kids into slavery, or in this case, maybe even your wife. Now, imagine you're the servant, and the king is telling you he's going to sell your wife and kids as slaves. You'd be pretty desperate at this point. You'd be willing to do anything. And so, you can imagine the servant getting on his knees and just begging, and he says, be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. Now, I don't know about you, and we don't have the full backstory on this servant, but it's pretty clear he's unable to pay this debt. But if it was you or me, and let's say I owed Jeff Bezos two and a half billion dollars, and I said, I'll pay it back, that'd be pretty laughable. <laughs> I'd have to live 20 lifetimes to, to pay back two and a half billion dollars. There's just no way that this servant's going to be able to pay back his debt to the king. But when the master hears him pleading so desperately, his heart is brought to pity. And he has mercy on the servant, and he cancels his debt. So imagine you are that servant. You've been forgiven this huge debt. Wouldn't you be so relieved? Wouldn't you be so thankful? That's what everyone would expect. That's what the master would expect. But that's not what happens in verses 28 through 35. In verses 28 through 35, we see that the servant trots off and finds someone who owes him 100 silver coins. And in modern money, that's about $4,000. We have $4,000 versus $2.5 billion. Now, seeing as this guy has just been forgiven two and a half billion dollars, you'd expect that he would just, when he encounters one of his fellow servants, that he would just say, forget about it. Like, don't even worry. I've been just forgiven so much. I just want to pass that on. But that's not what he does. Instead, he goes up to the guy, and he starts choking him, saying, pay up. And in response, this fellow servant echoes back the very words that this original servant had not so long ago uttered to the king. Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. And when we're talking about $4,000, that seems a lot more reasonable that this guy could actually eventually pay this money back. 
But despite that, despite the mercy that this original servant received, despite the fact that it's probably pretty realistic that this guy could pay back his debt in time, the servant isn't moved with the same pity and mercy as the king. He doesn't forgive his fellow servant. He doesn't just give him some more time. Instead, he throws him into prison until he can pay the debt. Now, apparently the servant didn't do this in the shadows. Because some of the other servants saw him do this. And they were outraged. And you could imagine if all of this played out on a video recording, how this would be viral in our society, how everyone would be super outraged that someone treated someone like this after they'd been forgiven so much. And the reason why everyone, the reason why all of us would be just so upset about this is because it's so obviously wrong. The servant so obviously lacks any sense of gratitude. And so it's no surprise then that we find the king back with this servant confronting him on what he's just done. Verse 32, he says, You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Now, we don't even need any explanation for the king's reasoning here. It's obvious. The servant should forgive as much as he's been forgiven. And yet he hasn't done that. And so the consequences of his actions result in him being tossed into jail where he's going to be tortured. Now, the purpose of the torture wasn't just to torture for torture's sake. And that day it would have been in order to produce a ransom. It was basically holding him hostage until someone could pay a ransom to pay off the debt. Now, remember, it's $2.5 billion. No one's paying back that debt. He's stuck there with the jailers who are torturing him. And the meaning that we're supposed to take from this parable is this. Jesus tells us in verse 35. He says, This is how my Heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Remember, Jesus is talking to His disciples. He's not talking about the wicked Gentiles or you know, the, the really bad people that you can imagine. He's talking about the people that are claiming that they are followers of Jesus who do not forgive their brother or sister. He says their end is going to be like this servant. They're going to face judgment for their failure to forgive. Notice how the tables have completely turned on Peter here. He came to Jesus thinking he was a generous, generous fellow being willing to forgive someone seven times. Now Jesus has told him that if he stops at seven, he'll be sent off to the jailers for some torture time. But in the course of this parable, Jesus has made clear why the consequences are so dire. Peter and every disciple of Jesus, including you and I, we all have unpayable debts before God. 
None of us are able to settle our accounts with him. A little more time won't help us. What we need is the forgiveness of all our sins. The cancellation of our debt. All the wrong we've done against God and our fellow man. Now God has mercifully offered us this forgiveness through Jesus. The very Son of God who has paid down all of our debts by laying down his life for our sakes. If we have been shown such great mercy, if we have received such great grace, mustn't we show this mercy to others? How can we not forgive what the Lord has forgiven us? Jesus tells us we must forgive repeat offenders because every single one of us are repeat offenders. And yet God never stops showing us mercy. When we stop showing mercy, we stab God in the back. A mere servant, I seat myself on the throne of the king. He can forgive, but I cannot. You can sin against God, but you better not sin against me. In the name of justice, we elevate ourselves above God himself. Jesus tells us this will not stand. You can be forgiven everything, but you yourself must be willing to forgive. He has shown us here in Matthew 18 that as his disciples, we are called to a completely different way of life than the world around us. If we will live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we must take our cues from the Father. We must see as he sees. We must do as he does. There is no room for egos. To be great, you must become the least. You must give up sin. You must not hold grudges against recovering sinners like yourself. We must love one another and forgive one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has loved and forgiven us. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Citruit, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Citruit Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.